If you have your copy of God's Word, I would ask you and invite you to open it to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21. We're going to be looking at evidence. Follow the evidence. If you watch TV detective mystery shows, cops and bad guys, you generally hear somebody at some point in that, those shows say, follow the evidence. Do you see the evidence of God in your history? We need to be looking for it. And that's the truth that Jesus is going to reveal to two groups today, that there's evidence out there. There's no more proof needed to trust Jesus, to just believe the evidence. So follow along as I read Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back in the boat and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? Let's pray. Father, we come to this passage, and the difficulty of it sometimes escapes us, but we know what the point is. This morning, help us to see that and to see where we fail to really watch out and beware of the things we are trusting in, the things we are clinging to. May we watch out and beware and remember what we've learned and trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. So as we looked at the book of Mark, it's an abridged kind of account of Jesus' ministry, his, his life here on the earth. It's meant to concisely convey to Gentile readers, not Jewish readers, Gentile readers, what Jesus came to do, what the Savior of the world came to offer them. Now we have the privilege of three other gospels that we can kind of cross-connect and, and help us understand some of the things that are going on here. But let me tell you, all the evidence and all the clarity for the salvation of a soul is found in Mark as well. So it's not needing anything, but it is good to have other gospels to tie to. But that's what the sermon's about today. The evidence is there that you can trust Jesus for your salvation. Mark tells of a debate with Pharisees, and he tells of a teaching moment with disciples, which reveals that neither group fully understood at this point in time why Jesus was there and what he was going to do. So for us, comprehending the evidence of Christ will guard our faith from subtle, insidious, insidious 
deceptions. And that's what we're going to do. How can these comprehensions protect us? Well, first Jesus warns them, and then he exposes two groups to the truth of them and two different uh, examples here. So I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to skip to the warning. So that's verses 14 through 16 because that's really what this verse is about. And then there's an example in front of it and an example behind it. So let's look at verses 14 through 16. Jesus warns us to be cautious, to beware. Let me read verses 14 through 16 again for you. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And then they were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. So we'll come back to the disciples' cluelessness in a minute. But we're first going to talk about Jesus' warning. Jesus gives a very, very strict warning here. He tells that the disciple, Mark tells us that the disciples, they get into the boat and they realize we've only got one loaf of bread. And then Jesus gives them this warning, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, Mark gives us that little blurb in, in verse 14 to kind of set the scene because this is just, their frame of mind was completely not on spiritual things. They got in the boat. Hey, we only got one loaf. What are we going to do? And they were worried about temporal things. They were worried about physical needs. And so then Jesus teaching says, watch out. Beware of the, of the poisoning subtlety of the Pharisees and of Herod. Basically, Jesus says, watch out for what they tell you in religion and what the government tells you, what the rulers tell you. Watch out. Because it's going to subtly enter your faith and ruin it. Neither of those two organizations, religion or the government, can save your soul. None of them. They can't do anything to help you. Their influence sometimes can lead astray. And that's Jesus' point. And see, the Pharisees, we're going to see in a minute, they've already eaten the poison. They've already drank the Kool-Aid, as they say. They've already uh, bought into it. Now, what is leaven? Well, leaven is not yeast alone. That's what some people think. Leaven is actually a small portion of bread dough from the previous week's batch that you use to start your next batch. It's kind of like a sourdough starter, I think. My mom used to have one of those. But if in the Old Testament, God forbid them to use leavened bread that had been made from an old portion on the night of the Passover. They ate what they called unleavened bread. It didn't rise. It wasn't using an old thing. And here's what it represents. It represents the old life in Egypt. That's what it represents. The old life of slavery and bondage that they were in in Egypt. So don't use that. Eat unleavened bread. Bread made fresh. Bread made without a portion. Because God called it the bread of affliction in Deuteronomy 16.3. He says, for you came out of of the land of Egypt in haste. So God just forbid it. Don't bring anything from your past along with you. It won't save you. It won't help you. It won't encourage you. Well, Paul even uses it in 1 Corinthians 5, 8 to talk about our old nature, that our old nature is the leaven of our life. It's stuff we hanging on to from our past, some, something we may have heard a long time ago that we're trusting in. So leaven in Scripture is a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of sin. 
It's a symbol of corruption. It's a symbol of distraction. It's meant to be avoided. And so Jesus uses the metaphor here because he knew his Jewish disciples would all understand the metaphor. Now, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16, he writes that this leaven is actually the false doctrines and teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he is correct. That is what Jesus is warning them about. He's warning their disciples to not be led away spiritually by the traditions and the distractions that the Pharisees have created. See, most of the stuff that they're arguing with Jesus about is not Scripture. It's traditions. Traditions that Jesus said, they're not from God. And they're like, what do you mean? We say they're from God. They're from God. Well, they're not. So Jesus gives two very stern commands. Beware and watch. When Jesus says those kind of things, when he puts two commands like that together, and these are commands, they're not suggestions, they're commands, he says he, he needs to be heard, and we need to remember it. Now, they sound the same to us, beware, watch out, those kind of things, but they're really, they mean the same thing, but Jesus is making a very, very uh, direct application of them to our souls. Jesus makes much of this issue, and we'll see in the two examples how the insidious corruption happens <clears throat> to our soul. It misleads to truth, to mistruth. It leads, misleads to mistruth. Jesus, when Jesus warns us, we don't need to second-guess it, okay? We don't need to go, what did he really mean that? He meant it. He meant it. We don't need to second-guess it. We don't need to mess with it. He's pointing out danger, and we need to heed it. So don't miss the understanding that he offers us. You know, there are warnings everywhere. I, you see them all the time. Warnings on, on everything you buy, there's a warning in the, in the instruction manual. Maybe there's a warning sticker on it. How many of you listen to the flight attendant give the, the pre-flight safety brief on an airplane? How many of you actually listen to that? <clears throat> they, they say, pull out the card. I never see anybody pull out the card. But I'm telling you, and you know why we don't do that? We don't think we're going to need it. We're going to think, hey, our flight's going to make it. Well, on January 15, 2009, Mr. Sullenberger took off from an airport in New York City, and they didn't make it, and they landed on the Hudson River. And guess what? During that whole time, none of them had pulled out the card to see where the life preserver was, and they landed on the Hudson River. All of them survived, praise the Lord, but I'm sure now every one of them, when they get on an airplane, they probably pull out that card. Because they know they needed that warning. And we need this warning. Jesus' warnings are crucial. And he doesn't say them lightly. Listen, here's what Peter got from this warning later. He writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. Listen what he says about this warning. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Just as there will be, yeah, you, who will strict secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter right there defines for you what the leaven is that Jesus is talking about in our, in our passage today. Here it is, destructive heresies, things that are counter to God's word, denying Jesus. There's a lot of people out there denying Jesus. Sensuality, 
truth blasphemed, truth discarded as lies or falsehoods, greedy exploitation. There's always a charlatan out there trying to peddle religion for their own personal gain. And false words, false words, otherwise known as lies. That's the leaven that, that Jesus is talking about. These all exist today. So don't take Jesus' warning about Pharisees and Herod as that's something in the past. These heresies exist today. Many so-called Christian preachers even peddle this evil today. Even many who profess Christianity as their religion live and accept the compromising of God's word. They do. They can't believe that we think premarital sex is wrong. But God said it was wrong. They choose to live in sin rather than trust the Bible. They listen to the world and not to God. See, everything we hear, everything we see, everything we read, everything we, we watch, it needs to be sifted and defined by God's word. Look at God's word about these things. Seek them. I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to pick on one that's, that's out there in the limelight in a big way. Godly sexuality. Godly sexuality has been deformed beyond all recognition. We don't even, people don't even know what it's supposed to look like, what it's supposed to be. I mean, it's everywhere, even in Altamont. People, governments, organizations, some Christian denominations, they disregard God's word to avoid condemning any sexual sin of any kind. They, they, they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Listen, this book is offensive because, first of all, it tells you you're a sinner. It starts right there. I mean, if, if you're offended by that, great. That means you, you, you know, you're hearing it. Most people aren't offended by it. But they disregard God's word to avoid condemning sexual sin because they think love is love. But if it's not based on anything, it's not really love. What's the result of this one example of distorting godly sexuality? I'm glad you asked. Abortion. Single parents, parentless children, disease, mental illness, even suicides because they can't figure out what sex they are. It's tragic. See, excusing sin under the flag of compassion, that is not a compassionate act. That's uncompassionate because sin destroys the soul and the body. So hiding our our, our our lack of offensiveness under compassion is, well, it's wrong. It's false words, the things Peter just talked about. So what do we do? We love them. We love them enough to tell them the truth. We love them enough to tell them the truth and that it is wrong, and then we help them find righteousness through Jesus Christ. We help them find the right way. See, God's not here to spoil their fun by, by chaining or bounding sexuality inside of marriage. He's not here to do that. It's the right way to do it. It's the way he wanted it done. It's the way he will bless it. But they can't see that because it's all around them. So part of heeding this warning as believers in Jesus Christ, as true, sincere believers, is to love and help those who are struggling with the falsehoods and the heresies and the leaven of the world. Be actively cautious. Engage them. <clears throat> Love them. Reach out to them. Help them understand there's a better way to live in Jesus Christ.
That's what Jesus is talking about here. So he gives them this warning. He gives the disciples this warning. And it's, and it's funny that it's right after he's had this confrontation with the Pharisees, which we're going to talk about right now, because the Pharisees, they had a poison of disbelief in their life, in their heart. So Jesus confronts the Pharisees and their failed comprehension of who Jesus is, verses 11 through 13. Follow along as I read that. So this is after they've landed on the coast of, on the western shore of Galilee after the feeding of the 4,000. The, the town mentioned up in verse 10 is Dalmanutha. doesn't even exist today. There's no archaeological dig for it. We don't really know where it is. Somewhere between Capernaum and Magdala, if you're looking at your maps in the back of your Bible. So it's somewhere in there. But that's where they've kind of landed. That's where they've come ashore. And then these Pharisees all of a sudden show up. Remember, I've been talking about the fact that his popularity has gotten the attention of Herod and the Pharisees, and so they're hunting for him. So let's listen to this exchange they have. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them. He got back into the boat and went to the other side. And we'll find out next week they actually went to Bethsaida, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So even before the boat trip, even before Jesus brings this warning out to his disciples, the Pharisees are expressing that complete missed understanding of Jesus. See, Pharisees are Judaism's teachers. They're their leaders. They're the ones that are are supposedly, supposedly leading the people in God's word. But It's obvious that they're missing something. And now they're hunting Jesus down. They confront him. They demand a sign. I just, I wonder what they think now. I demanded a sign from the Son of God. Oh my, what was I thinking? They were a little presumptuous of their authority. They want to test Jesus' authority. They want to test. They want a sign from heaven. Disregard all the miracles that they know he's done. I want a sign from heaven. And really, they're just testing him. They approach Jesus argumentatively. They're questioning his divinity. And they're pressing him for their own purposes. I mean, they still just refuse after all that they know that he's done. Witnesses telling them about what he's done. Some of them have seen it. They refuse to believe that he could be the Messiah. And they rebel against his authority. Jesus sees this and he sighs deeply. This is the only place in the New Testament where the Greek word for this sighing is used. And it's basically a sigh of grief. That they're that blind. That they can't see. And then he asks them a question, but he's really not expecting an answer. Why does this generation want a sign? Well, he knows why they want a sign. He knows their motives have nothing to do with salvation. Their motives have nothing to do with truth. Their motives are not pure. And nothing he does will convince them. Nothing. There's nothing he can do to convince them. Even rising from the dead doesn't convince them. So he says, if you get a sign, this is, this is really what this phrase, truly I tell you no sign will be given to this generation. It's really an idiomatic phrase. And literally it means this, over my dead body will you get a sign. Which is kind of prophetic in a sense because that will be the ultimate sign. But that's what he's saying. If you get a sign from me, it'll be over my dead body. He didn't finish the statement, but that's kind of what it means. They have no right 
and they have no place to demand a sign from the Son of God. Now, other Gospels record a little extra phrase on here, except the sign of Jonah. Matthew, Luke, they record that phrase. We don't know if it was actually in this interchange with the Pharisees, but it was an interchange with the exchange with the Pharisees. So what does that mean when he says, except the sign of Jonah? Well, it means what I've been hinting at. Three days in the fish, three days in the grave. That's the equality there. That's why Jesus said, that's, what you, that's the next sign you will see, Pharisees. You will see that. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the ultimate sign of anybody. And that's what the other Gospels kind of point to. See, Jesus knew their demand and insistence was for his detriment, not for understanding him. Their faith was dead, and they could not see the signs, the signs that they'd already received. One, author, one uh, commentator I, I read says, there is no legitimate sign left for the Pharisees except the humiliated and crucified Lord. See in the cross the power and wisdom of God that rests in the exercise of faith. They didn't have any faith. He says, which by definition, this faith can never rest in proofs or signs or else his faith, faith's character would be lost. See, faith in Christ saves, not faith in signs. Faith in Christ saves the soul. Faith in what Christ did on the cross and rising from the dead, that's what saves the soul. Not feeding 4,000, not feeding 5,000, not giving a paralytic back his legs, not even raising Lazarus from the dead saves. That's not where our faith has to be. Our faith has to be in Jesus Christ alone. What he did on the cross they would not trust Christ. And so they failed to comprehend all the signs that they had been aware of and a part of. They refused to listen. You ever tried to explain something to someone and they just won't listen to you? You know, they want to know how to do something and you can tell them and they just won't listen. Well, here's kind of what happens when you don't listen to Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus said. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." It's going to be a sad, sad day when that happens, when many people think that they've trusted in the right things and all they've done is trust in themselves, trust in their own idea of what's right. Many think they know the right path to heaven or to whatever happens after this life in their definition, but they really don't. They really don't. See, people challenge Christianity all the time. You can't hardly enter any, any kind of secular area and not get confronted with this if you claim to be a Christian. They question Jesus's reality. They demand their own sign of truth, their own sign of who is Jesus real. Some truly seek Christ because the gospel has pricked their heart and their conscience, and they're like, there's something to this. As a matter of fact, a pastor I had in Omaha, that's how he got saved. His heart got pricked by the Holy Spirit, and he just said, it must have something to do with Jesus, and he went and found out. Praise the Lord. But there's, there, there's a lot that avoid the truth. There's a lot that refuse to believe. There's a lot that sh just shut it down. 
They, don't, they ask faithless questions if they ask any questions. They host hard hearts in their lives. They, their rebelliousness, there's, there's prideful refusal, resisting the truth for lies. They want to be their own God. That's the basic sin that we all are guilty of. It's what Adam and Eve were guilty of. It's what all of us are guilty of. We want to be our own God. We want to make our own rules, decide our own way. But let me tell you, the Old Testament, it speaks of signs that Jesus would fulfill, and he did. Yet people want more proof. And so today, the New Testament shows what Jesus did, the great miracles and the resurrection that Jesus did. Still, they don't have any faith. Here's the truth. Most heresy or error in Christianity starts when they disregard God's word. When they begin to question pieces of it. When they begin to ask questions and, well, did he really mean that? Or did this really mean this? That's how it starts. It's very insidious. It's very subtle. Sometimes it's just an innocent question, an innocent debate. And when people won't listen to the Bible, when they won't listen to this book, the 66 books of the Bible, and accept its truths and trust its credibility, they will never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to know the whole Bible to have faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, John 3.16 is enough. But you have to have heard it, and you have to accept it, and you have to believe it. They will never put their faith in Jesus Christ. God's Word, this Bible, is the only source of truth regarding the eternal disposition of a human soul. It is the only book of truth about that. I know there's a lot of religions out there that think they've got it figured out, but they don't. They don't. And a lot of people are on their way to hell because they've never seen this word. This word points to Jesus alone. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all about Jesus. And when one disregards it, like these Pharisees have done, they will perish into eternal damnation. And this is why Pandu in India wants Bibles right now. He's got 17,000 new Christians, praise the Lord. He needs Bibles because they need the Word of God. So stop looking for signs. That's what these Pharisees are doing. Stop looking for signs. Stop looking for more proof. Stop reading for another archaeological artifact. I know a lot of people that hang on that. Well, this proves the Bible. This proves the Bible. The Bible's truth whether they find an archaeological dig for it or not. There's a lot of archaeological support, but believe in what Jesus has done. That's what saves. The Pharisees weren't willing to do that. He is the resurrection and the life. No one comes to God except through him. So repent and believe. Don't be a Pharisee and just ignore the signs. So the Pharisees have been deceived by their own lies. There were no more signs for them. There was no more signs that would convince them. Yet his disciples were kind of in the same boat and they still needed some help. <laughs> but they actually listened to Jesus, which is an unusual thing. Jesus reminds the disciples to believe, verses 17 through 21. Let me read that for us. Aware of this, aware of the fact that the, they were discussing about bread, aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, 
How many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? Okay, so Jesus really can't believe his ears that they're talking about bread after watching 4,000 people get fed and knowing it five, and seeing 5,000 people. They can't believe it. They're talking about bread? So Jesus, these questions are really, they really sound like he's screaming at them. I mean, he's probably not because Jesus, I don't think he screamed. Jesus was, was challenging them a little bit. He might have been scolding them to a certain degree, but I think he was, he was doing a, a method of what they call catechizing. He was asking questions, trying to pull the answers out of them, trying to help them stop for a second and stop thinking about bread and think about the spiritual things that he wants them to think about. He's challenging them. And he uses six rhetorical questions here and then also two real questions he wants answers to. And he's using this to jolt them out of their shallow consciousness about spiritual things. He exhorts them to faith not sight. Trust what you know. Trust what you've seen and believed. So he gets their mind off the bread first, and then he presses them as if they were outsiders. And like he talked about in, in chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, there are some who are outside the kingdom and will not understand. And he's pressing them in that way. You know what? Hard-heartedness, it indicates a persistent resistance to God's purposes. Even though one has seen God do some things, Pharaoh's a great example of someone whose heart, God hardened it, but he had a hard heart to begin with, and he just continued to resist no matter what plague came on him and his people. Well, Jesus is using that truth here, and he's calling them on them to believe what they've already seen. Don't, don't let your heart be hard, like Pharaoh who just continued to ignore what was going on around him. <clears throat> Jesus is making a point here that their shallow thinking and trivial concerns, they really indicate a spiritual blindness and a spiritual deafness. Their shallow thinking, their trivial concerns are really creating a, a, a blindness and a deafness to spiritual things. Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage here in verse 18. This Old Testament passage is in three places. I think it's important to God to, to hear this, so I'm not going to go read them all. But in Jeremiah 5:21, Ezekiel 12:2, and Isaiah 6, chapter 9, or verses 9 through 10, he uses this passage: "Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear?" Spiritual blindness was a big concern, and their eyes and their ears are not working in the spirit right now. Jesus is trying here to heal their spiritual blindness and their spiritual deafness. So finally, he's, he asks them all these questions, these rhetorical questions, and he finally, he takes them back to the two feeding miracles. <laughs> Not to point out physical provisions, but spiritual ones. Jesus created food for over 30,000 people out of nothing and made even more than what was needed out of nothing. So that's, that's his, has, he's wanting them to understand his, the point here. What is the point here? I'm glad you asked. There was more to feeding the feeding miracles than just food, than just satisfying hunger. There was more to it than that. <clears throat> Jesus revealed his deity. He showed his divine authority that fulfills the salvation of God. Only God can save a soul. And he showed that through his miracles of feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. Jesus explains that the constant and intentional expressions of his divinity testifies 
that he is the all-sufficient Savior. He is capable. If he can create something out of nothing, he is capable to save a soul. I mean, these men have seen Jesus do more than any prophet ever was seen doing in the Old Testament. They've never seen, they've never even heard of anybody doing as much as he's doing. They've heard him speak truths that have never been before been uttered as plainly as they've, he's uttered them to them. Jesus calls them to believe what they see and know. He pleads with them to see the missed understanding of all that they have been a part of. I think of it kind of like as my children were growing up and they had chores. Instead of saying, did you take out the garbage? I remind them, hey, were you supposed to do something tonight? Were you supposed to, what were you supposed to do with that? What, was there something in your room you needed to take care of? You know, if I wanted them to clean up the room. So it was kind of like this reminding question. And I think Jesus is doing a little bit of that with them. He's just trying to remind them. And Jesus did it with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resignation, re, res, resurrection. He travels incognito and explains the whole Bible to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, listen, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That's in Luke 24. Jesus is just trying to remind his disciples of what they've said. See, we get self-absorbed in our own daily needs or lost in our own interpretations of life. Truth or salvation keeps us blind and deaf. We, we sometimes get just so concerned about worldly things that we forget to see the heavenly things. See, these questions that Jesus asked the disciples right here, he asked us. He's asking us every day. He's asking us every day. Why worry about bills, food, shelter? Why has your faith been weak? Why don't you trust him totally? Can you see the truth in Scripture? Can't you see that? Are you even looking at Scripture for answers? Is your heart hard toward the things of God? Jesus is asking us that. And then he says to us, remember, remember, Remember what you have seen, what you have heard, what you have experienced. We all have a history. The fact that you're alive and you're present here this morning is a testimony that God cares for you. He loves you. If you are a child of his through Jesus Christ, that's even more grace he shed on you. Recall in your mind all that Christ has done for you, all that he's given you and brought you through, and praise the Lord for it. Don't take it for granted. You're not lucky to be here. You're blessed. <laughs> I prefer that over luck. God, by grace, put you here, gave you what you have, and led you to do what you're doing. He put you there for that purpose. So we need to stop holding our faith in and kind of like wondering if we've got enough. We need to let it out. You get it out of the can, get it out of the bag, whatever you're keeping it in, and, and let your faith out. Fully commit to following him no matter what. Fully commit to your life being devoted to Christ. Don't you understand yet, Jesus asked them. You see, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is, 
living in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul says that. The same power that raised Christ from the dead resides in us in the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing we can't do if God calls us to do it. Nothing's impossible with him. See, Jesus' teachings, they weren't leavened. They weren't poisoned. They were vital. They were sustaining for the soul. Now, the leaven of the world, that's poison. And it'll destroy the soul. I just talked about one area that it does, but there's so many others. So let it never escape our minds and our hearts that Jesus is everything necessary for life and godliness. Jesus doesn't need to prove himself to you. Some people want God to give him a sign or a proof. He doesn't need to prove himself to you or me or anyone. He is who he is, the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by faith in him, you can be saved. That's enough. So this morning we've looked at the fact that Jesus warns his disciples of, of the poison and the misunderstandings of, of what they've seen and what they've heard, and the Pharisees have missed it. And these misunderstandings will put our souls in jeopardy. It'll either send us to hell if we don't ever believe or to make our faith weak in this life. So this morning, let's, as we approach our time of prayer, let's think about what warnings we have ignored. Jesus gave lots of warnings. What truths have we watered down in our own mind? What things have we compromised on that we need to correct? What understandings have we missed in our walk of faith? None of us are perfect. So I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you you can be perfect. But when we heed Jesus' warnings and we apply biblical truths, our faith gets stronger. Our life will improve. So let's pray for God to show us our rebellion, to heed his warnings and to trust him completely. Let's take our time of pastoral prayer right now. If you want to come to the front and pray, we'll have a time of silent prayer, and then I'll close us out in a few minutes. So let's pray.